Three, two, one, and uh, we're live. Everyone, welcome back to Let's Take This Online with me, Digital Hoos, Samal Haj. Uh, special guest today, someone that I uh, was pretty keen to get on, and thanks to Chris Chilton for for uh, making a connection. Shout out. We have Stacey Fisher, who is the head of digital transformation, is that right? Yes. At uh, Hearts and Sciences, who's been in the region for how long now? Three years. Three years. Came uh, straight from New York, right? Yep. Um, someone from the minute I met her, we had such an awesome conversation. I'm like, we have to have a podcast just because I think we, we think alike, even though we come from very different backgrounds and we, we worked in different places, but I feel like it was interesting. We kind of got to the same conclusion in life. Yep. So, um, anyway, let's, let's get back into it. I want to know something. What did you study in university? I actually started, um, I originally went to university to study meteorology, which is wow. quite funny. <laughs> um, usually people say to me, oh, so you wanted to be a weather girl. And I said, actually, no, uh, <laughs> I wanted to do research. Uh, maybe you could say I was a little okay. bit obsessed with the movie Twister, but okay. uh, <laughs> I quickly pivoted to communication um, and I actually received a general bachelor's degree in communication. Okay. And from there, where did you get head off to? So I landed an internship with a boutique uh, agency okay. in Chicago. It was okay. a full service agency. All right, cool. And that's kind of how I landed into advertising. It was a paid internship. Interesting. Um, I had this internship right before I did my last semester of college abroad okay. in Rome, Italy. Okay. And so I needed the money, right? Fair so I originally thought maybe I'll go into PR, and then here I was at this advertising internship, and I ended up liking it. Okay. Uh, it was a full service agency. We did account management, okay. uh, media planning and buying, creative, so even TV commercials, okay. print ads, awesome. radio. I like first. I like full service agencies. <laughs> yeah, I it mean, just makes it was, life simpler. It was everything, and um, I mean, this was back in the day with like tear sheets for print advertising and. Oh, wow. know, I remember. Totally. I remember those sheets. I <laughs> yeah. really do remember. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So yeah, was right that, after was that early two thousands, mid two thousands. Yeah, okay, cool. yeah, yeah. So right after uh, I was abroad in Rome, Italy, they actually offered me a full time okay. job. Did you, did you work in Italy? No. Okay, it was, I did it was not. just kind of just travel, studying. enjoy life. Yeah, right, studying, cool. studying. Oh, okay, continuing yeah. communications. It was my last semester of college. Okay, fine. Yeah, interesting. So then you came back to Chicago and then you did full time there. Yep. All right, exactly. Cool. So I landed a full time job. And I didn't want to move home to mom and dad, okay, so I took the job, and there I was. You know, I remained at this agency for five and a half years. Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, you know, I was there well before Facebook advertising was a thing, yeah. so I was there really. Well, it was when... just AdWords, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I um, basically, what was it in two thousand and eight? Yeah. Kind of realized I had a big passion for digital media okay. and. I made the change. Um, Were you like a planner at first? No. Like, okay. So I actually was in account management. Okay. So, so I client was servicing. client servicing. Okay. I was managing, you know, the client. I was managing the internal teams. So creative, uh, working with the creative team to, you know, bring the brand to life, uh, work on, you know, everything for offline media. Interesting. And then also worked with the media team to help them plan and okay. buy the actual media that we ran. All right, cool. So, okay. That's really interesting. That was kind of your first delving into. So you were like more of, more of the person just really like the coordinator between yeah, everyone more than exactly. actual person who was saying exactly. making the plans and stuff yeah i mean Very i you know really taught myself media which is how i kind of made the transition yeah. to media how so, do you do that 
Well, so the next gig was 100% digital, and I went to a company okay. called Datomi. Okay. okay, yeah, yeah. Okay. I was there when uh, Value Click Media yeah. bought them out. Interesting. Obviously, I didn't make enough to retire on, but I, you know, it was a nice <laughs> little startup bonus, I guess you could say. Uh, so at okay. Datomi, I was there for a little over a year. And back in the day, 2008, I mean, that was the very early days of yeah. ad networks. Uh, very early days. Very early days. Even before, uh, really, before even programmatic, even. Was it, yeah. was it really? I mean, it Go was, Google it, bought a double click, what, 2008, nine, something like that? Me, me and Chris were talking about somewhere it. Somewhere around there. I mean, yeah. because previously it was Invite Media, I think. Yeah. Uh, but in any case, at Datomi, we had built basically our own ad server, uh, okay, our wow. own bidder. Okay. Uh, so we were tapping into the media networks at that okay. time that did exist. So uh, Datomi, a lot of people liken them to a Critio. So, you mm. know, dynamic display remarketing. Yeah, okay, fine. Like a, uh, they, they had a DCO at the time? or something? We did, oh, wow. actually. Okay. Um, actually, our DCO Before was Before DCO became a thing, right? Yeah, we had a creative technology team and uh, they were actually building these wireframes where mm -hmm. you could completely program any module you wanted. Wow. And then it was obviously going to the lookup sheet, which hosted okay. all of the copies, images, colors, etc. So we even had um, a computer engineering team. Okay. So they were the ones that were actually coding and making all the programming behind the scenes possible. Wow, okay. So it was quite cool. Pretty I was in account management time. at that time as well, okay. um, handling 13 national okay. retail accounts. So it was kind of my first dive into uh, e-commerce. Okay. Um, and, you know, I really learned a lot. Um, I learned, you know, all the basics in terms of the media math, if mm -hmm. you will, where, you know, um, if you have this amount of impressions, this amount of traffic going to the site, this many transactions, et cetera, and then calculating the return on ad spend, okay, the okay, ROAS. Okay. So yeah. uh, we also looked a lot in terms of uh, Lyft studies. Okay. Which again is quite advanced for That's that time very, because very advanced for now some marketers, especially in the Middle East, are just now starting to do conversion lift analysis. Yeah. So I'm really thankful for that experience because yeah. I learned a lot. And being at a startup, you know, you really kind of uh, wear a lot of hats, if you will. For sure. um, so that is true. And uh, after my short little stint there, I was recruited by Viviki. Okay. Which obviously doesn't really exist anymore. So no, it doesn't. <laughs> I uh, transitioned over to uh, Viviki in Chicago. Okay. Which was the global headquarters. And uh, also, you were client service account management, and then you kind of start shifting. Yes, there. but my role was completely different. Yeah, so okay. I was brought on, and a lot of people always think, oh, you were brought on for AOD, audience on demand, yeah. which was the, the early desk. days of their trade desk. Um, and that wasn't true. Actually, I was brought on for a function called Audience Insights, mm -hmm. which was more or less uh, building the uh, business model and building the client service model mm -hmm. on top of a DMP engagement. So okay. uh, Viviki had chosen kind of Blue Kai um, okay. as the preferred DMP. And we were actually uh, creating, you know, the go-to-market plan. So working with the other publicities agencies like Starcom, et mm -hmm. cetera. 
and then working with the end client as well to try and sell in a DMP proposition. Okay, okay. So why I existed is because DMPs were super new. Yeah. And what year was this? This was like this 2011? Was, uh, 20, 20, what, 12? Okay. Yeah. Okay. I think yeah, 2011, DMPs, 2012, DMPs somewhere were, around yeah. there. And basically, you know, the people that were in the agencies didn't really know much about DMPs. They needed specialists, agency side, yeah. that could kind of connect the dots uh, to not only sell in the DMP, but also deliver a value prop above and, and, and beyond. And who would build it like the taxonomies in the DMP? Was it you or did you have a team it for It was that? myself working with Blue Kai okay. and the client. Okay, fine. Uh, so because, you kind of outsource a bit of it? Yeah, a bit of it. But this is before Oracle even bought Blue Kai. Way before. Yeah, yeah. yeah this was when Blue Kai was a complete just, startup. Yeah. Independent uh, DMP. Wow. And one of the cool things is because we had to give a reason for clients to work with us versus Blue Kai directly, yes. uh, we actually developed our own set of reports that were proprietary on top of the raw extract. So yeah, yeah. basically, clients the, don't want to read the raw extract. The, exactly. So the reporting suite that was available in Blue Kai at the time, I had worked with, you know. Uh, some you know pretty brainy people on the team to develop uh, a lot of different insights that weren't available. So um, that was more or less my role for two years at Viviki. Okay. Um, so that really sums up what I did in Chicago. So you basically really got into data. Yeah, I really got into data. Wow. So I went straight from you know kind of everything within advertising, even offline media, creative, etc. Okay. Then I went straight into, you know, hardcore dynamic remarketing and display advertising. And then I went into data. That's so, that's a data and analytics. That's a very cool journey. <laughs> yeah, it was all in one city. Yeah, exactly. All <laughs> in one city. And then I took um, I took the plunge to New York. All right. Um, it was always a dream of mine to move to New York. Uh, New York is the global media capital. For sure. And uh, it's super competitive. And especially at that time, I was you know, searching for a job late 2013 yeah. uh, into early 2014. Super competitive market. I mean... Was that the biggest difference between Chicago and New York was just yes, the amount of talent? Amount of talent and uh, competitiveness. Wow. So. You know, I really had to put my, you know, neck on the line and tell recruiters, listen, I will be prepared and be ready to start in New York two weeks from you offering me the job. Yeah. Because in the U.S., it's a two-week notice period. Okay, As fine. a courtesy. Okay. <laughs> so it's much different from the Middle East. Very, very different. can be one to six months. Yeah, so. pretty intense. Anyways, I landed a job with Merkel. Okay. Uh, so Merkel, back in the day before Dentsu bought them, uh, way when they started in the early days, uh, they were a database marketing company. So mm -hmm. they had started in direct mail. So uh, basically, the, about the time that I was joining, um, the leader of our department was tasked with bringing all the offline data online and okay. creating a digital proposition around it. So... I joined the team um, within digital media. Yeah. So this effectively was my first ever true media gig. Very interesting because <laughs> everything else before wasn't... Exactly. Yeah. Um, so I you know, was a director of digital media at Merkel. Um, everything up until that point was you know, not totally focused within traditional media planning but i you know self-taught myself you know yeah. i read so much and i talked to a lot of people to self-educate because this is where i knew i wanted to be within my career mm 
So at Merkel, uh, you know, when I joined, it was quite interesting because we were one of the first advertisers, um, one of four, I believe it was, that was allowed to augment our clients' data and directly upload that within Facebook. Um, Are we talking about like email lists? Yes. Okay, wow. Exactly. So that's part of that offline data that we brought online. Okay. So, and this was what Facebook wasn't doing for everyone. It was just like a handful of agencies that could do that at the time. Was it like yeah, a testing only period? A handful, like a beta test, right? Exactly. Only okay. four. Um, I don't even know if all of them were advertisers, but uh, four companies were allowed to uh, do Use this it. at the time. Oh, wow. That's so really, really we were, cool really in on the early days of customer match and uh, even for our, our own data that we were utilizing, we um, had brought all that data online and used uh, providers such as Datalogix to do mm -hmm. uh, cookie matching. Okay. So, um, so matching the first party data to the, to the third party cookie kind of thing? Exactly. Okay. So basically onboarding a client's CRM. Um, matching that with mm. the offline CRM because mm. basically since Merkel was a database marketing company, we had records for nearly 90% of U.S. households. Wow. So That's what they've been doing for years. Exactly. They're just collecting that data. Exactly. So uh, we found a way to bring that data online. Okay. And so it was a very interesting role and I um, really enjoyed my time there because basically we were running, you know, 90% of our media was transacted programmatically. Okay. Uh, and I was overseeing a team where we were doing full uh, display, video, audio, rich media, native, and uh, social uh, planning, buying, everything optimization, everything. Yeah. Oh, wow. I mean, we were facilitating some direct buys with uh, an IO, but... Um, Mostly we were piping those deals programmatically, whether they were PG deals or we were setting them up as private marketplace. Okay. Um, it really kind of was a case-by-case -case scenario. So that was quite interesting and we were quite competitive because we were very transparent. Um, and this was back in the day when many of the big agencies chose to not be transparent mm -hmm. and to kind of charge clients at that programmatic bundled fee. So yeah. Uh, you know, really clients liked working with us because we were fully transparent. We were on the front lines of communication. You didn't have to go to, you know, your agency and then your agency had to go internally to their programmatic trading desk. It mm. was, you know, just direct communication with the team that was actually buying the media for the brand itself. Very cool. Let's just pause there. Yeah. I want to, I want to get into post that, but you made up, you made some really interesting things I want to talk about. One, you were always self-taught in digital pretty much yes how do you how did you first start so when you first got your first job account manager you know nothing about digital you came Correct. for communications and they don't teach you digital communications. no i mean literally well in my degree i finished in 2005 yeah. so this like was the early days of the yeah. internet well, email. I, well i got my master's degree in marketing and there was yeah. no digital on that either exactly. for example this was 2011 no. Right. So obviously you don't, you know, I think now, I think they teach digital universities, but back when obviously you and I studied, we, there was nothing. Yeah. So I want to know is how did you start to teach yourself? I'm always fascinated by this. Honestly, for me, I, you know, the, <laughs> I just went straight into reading as many articles yeah. as I could. Yeah. Um, for me, that's how I, I was able to kind of learn. And then I started to read all of the, you know, acronyms and terminologies, yeah. <laughs> like, literally just reading the definitions as if I was reading a dic dictionary. You yeah, know? sometimes you got to do that. 
Um, so once I started kind of reading all that stuff, then I tried to speak to as many people as I could yeah, that 100%. I idolized and that I, you know, effectively became my mentor. I was lucky enough that when I was at Datomi, uh, one of my managers, she, you know, really was tough on us and okay. actually forced us to learn mm. uh, quite a few things in terms of media and like crunching numbers and how to look at the numbers. So she literally made us like sit down for an hour each week with her and mm. like just actually calculate everything by hand so okay, that's awesome this really taught me uh media interaction yeah. so i think that you know one very important thing for people to kind of master within digital is not just learning about each of the channels in silo but actually understanding how all of the channels interact with each other mm. and how this, you know, kind of goes towards achieving your client's business goals and objectives. And that's yeah. kind of what I started early on in terms that's of my learning plan. Yeah. So the way I started is literally exactly what you did. I would just print out sheets yeah. with definitions. What's an impression? What's a click? Formula for CTR? For, what's a view? Formula for VTR? Yeah, I would just exactly. memorize it. Yeah. And then I found out is one thing I also found was useful is just meet as many suppliers as possible. Because at that yeah. time, suppliers were ahead of me. Yes. I was new digital. I didn't know anything. So I just started meeting suppliers and they would talk and they would talk and I would, I would learn. I would learn and learn. I kept doing that until I realized, okay, now there's, now the suppliers are kind of learning from me now. Yes. Because I've kind of, you know, because suppliers have their lingo and they don't really, I don't know, I don't know how it's in the States, but here, for example, they don't really go outside their realm. Yeah. I sell video. I know, I know as what, whatever it does to close a deal, but then outside that, I don't know. So then I would meet with tens of suppliers like every week i would meet 20 suppliers and they'll just meet one after the other i'll just learn and learn and learn and learn and within a few months i got it down yeah and that was just about implementing it exactly i mean i had a very uh, similar situation yeah. when i was in new york because there were so many media partners mm. and i mean literally maybe each week i was meeting with minimum of three different partners i was yeah. emailed every day and what really helped me to learn as well is understanding the differentiation between these partners. Yes. Because everyone kind of claims, well, I, you know, I have access to the largest gaming inventory or I have access to the largest quantity of mobile apps, etc. So I really had to kind of drill into the technicalities to mm -hmm. determine what set these partners apart. Yeah. And then effectively rank them across, you know, our needs and objectives for achieving our goals. Yeah. So um, that's also what helped me to learn more of the technicalities in terms of the back end of what really goes into, mm. you know, digital media buying um, that a lot of people don't necessarily think about. Um, when you were at Merkle, did you guys work off an agency fee or retainer? You know, we did a little bit of both, okay. actually. Um, it really just kind of depended upon the scope okay. uh, because some of our engagements were more performance-based mm -hmm. because a lot of the media that we were running was pure direct response. Okay. So, uh, but, you know, if we had a large client engagement, uh, for example, I worked on HBO and I worked okay. on the launch of Massive companies, right? HBO Now, which was their uh, standalone streaming app, OTT yeah. platform. And... Uh, we actually had quite a huge team in place because we had account management, uh, project manager, uh, strategy team, mm. analytics, platforms and capabilities, media, search, etc. So, you know, we had to obviously cover the FTE cost. So For sure. we operated off of a scope. And, um, you know, that was one thing that I 
you know, really have found to be different in uh, moving from the U.S. 100%. to the Middle East is, you know, we really kind of stuck to our guns in terms of what's inside of scope and what is not outside of scope. And, yeah. you know, if something wasn't in scope, we Each really made the it. case and, yeah, we wouldn't do it. I mean, we couldn't do it, yeah. you know, and we or if we if the client really wanted us to do it, then it, it would be at this cost. 100%. Um, so it was quite an interesting engagement because... Um, our project manager was, you know, really a true referee. I mean, he okay. had yeah. to liaise and literally say, you know, just because of the volume of work that we had, the high budgets that we were spending, you know, the goals that we were asked to achieve, he had to literally say, you know, listen, guys, we can't achieve all this. And he would go to the client and tell them this, you know. So respect. It was, yeah, respect. Yeah. But, I mean, I'm bringing this up because... It was we don't something do that, that I, yeah, that I haven't seen so much no. here, and uh, it's something that, quite frankly, if you think about really the future and you know mm. where we need to go in order to be successful in terms of digital transformation, and that obviously is what my current role is today at Hearts and Science and yeah. Nina is really we need to be respectful of, quite frankly, the time it takes to do for sure certain projects i completely agree the problem we have here is and one i've seen rarely when i say rarely i could count it maybe on one hand is a director or manager that says no to a client yeah uh, but it's such a simple thing but it's so important yeah the fact is when clients send requests at thursdays at 5 30 p.m <laughs> yeah. and we say okay and then please work till 11 11 p.m 12 a.m yeah and the client's already gone he's out he's partying yeah and he's probably not gonna look at it till sunday just because he wanted to request it the fact that there was no matter to say no that's a problem and yeah. i think i think it's part of the i'm gonna call it a toxic or wrong environment we have in the region is and i think that's only one part of it the fact that it's okay to say no to a client exactly or you know I completely agree. I think that actually uh, you almost need to say no because otherwise you don't really establish a, a level of mutual respect. No, you don't. Um, they just think they walk all over you. look like you're just a pushover and yeah. you're a doer. And then the clients, ultimately, you get into a relationship status where they know that they can more or less take advantage of you. Yeah. And that's not really a healthy relationship, in my opinion. Now, listen, that's not to say that I don't think that, you know, there isn't a, an ad hoc situation, there which always definitely is. can call for, you know, a weekend, you know, thing or where people need to start working at 5.30 p.m., as you mentioned, on a Thursday until 11 p.m. But I do think that there's a huge difference in terms of, what I've been exposed to um, in my time in the U.S. in terms of clients understanding the time yeah. it takes to get things done to what I've seen so far within this region. But yeah, client understanding is a huge thing. And actually, I'm going to put a note to get into it. There was one thing I want to ask. The reason I want to ask about agency yeah. versus retaining because you guys said you were transparent. Yes. Which is something that's really interesting. And now, I would love to get your thought on this. I look at transparency as a as two parts. One is a client's fault and the agency's fault. I'm, and I only talk about it within the region because I've only worked in this region. Yeah. So I don't know how it was outside. So for example, when you have, I've worked on accounts where agency fees as low as 1%. So oh, even, wow. So even if you're, even if your media spending on digital, whatever, was $100,000 a month, which is a lot, which is a good amount. Yeah. $100,000 on a digital, it's actually a good amount you could do with, that's $1,000. I mean, that's $1,000. That's you can't pay a yeah. third of a salary. Yeah. Right. So I understand. Then, then agencies come to arbitrage, right? When they want to make those high margins, I'll be like, is there, 
are they justified to do so because their HCA fees are so low? And it's it, it kind of like a, it's a cyclical thing that keeps going back and forth. So when you guys were doing your agency fee and retainer, so whatever you charge a client would be enough to cover all the fixed costs. That's what you guys are. That's the model you guys are working exactly. on, right? Exactly. Plus, obviously, be lucrative, right? Of course, I mean, there has to be a day, profit. We're a business, and we needed a profit, so. Yes, absolutely. Um, I mean, I wasn't so much involved within the scope of work process, but uh, yeah. from my understanding, I mean, even even in my early days, um, my first ever mm -hmm. ad agency back in Chicago, that boutique firm, yeah. uh, you know, we worked on a retainer <laughs> model. And uh, I remember very clearly for one of my clients, it was actually a casino, and we would go over the hours allotment by at least a hundred hours every month yeah. and every month i would send the client here's the quantity of hours that we are going over mm -hmm. and here's the billable rate for it and actually Fair. when we went over time the billable rate increased of course because they it's paid a, it's it at a, it's they at paid it factor, there yeah. was zero questions asked they paid it they knew that they were you know utilizing us over what the you know scope of work had been mm -hmm. And then obviously some months we were just meeting the quantity yeah. of hours. So, you know, we didn't really face any frustrations from the client that's, side in paying that. That's so weird because <clears throat> that's basically like a consulting model. That's how exactly. consultants work. And, and then exactly. it's so weird when a client will go a consultant, they'll accept the hourly rate model. They'll accept it. They, they go to an agency, they don't accept it. That's what's so funny, isn't it? They, they, want, a, they want the lowest agency fee possible. It but is they, they're super bizarre. It, I right? think that... Uh, we are reaching an inflection point with yeah, this. Yeah, I think so as well. Um, I think that with, um, you know, this move towards transparency and, you know, that's originally what you brought up, right? Yep. Is that, uh, you know, a lot of agencies were kind of forced to not be transparent, if you will, in order to make the money that they needed yeah. to have the team in place. Well, I think that more and more agencies are becoming transparent. Yeah. I think that media cost is becoming transparent yes. because more and more clients and advertisers mm -hmm. are starting to question where that money is going. Yeah. Um, I mean, it, people really, it's its kind of hard to not see the information it's for really yourselves yeah, it's, in the trades. I mean, you know, obviously Google recently went from a second price auction to first price yes. auction and that's you know, also for the sake of transparency. I mean, there's obviously lots of talk about, you know, potentially uh, putting forth blockchain technology mm -hmm. for media transparency within the yeah. supply chain. So I think that, you know, as more and more steps are taken to, you know, bring transparency into actual yeah. digital media cost, I think that clients will start to understand yeah. um, that actually it's not, possible for us to be able to you know do the work and make that one percent fee that that you were talking yeah, about. yeah it's a joke i mean i i've always said it it's, it's an absolute it's a ridicule when you're working off of one percent yeah you're just not you're just not able to sustain and then it make, <laughs> then you wonder why what's so interesting is one you made a good thing clients are waking up but yes. i think i think i don't know if it's a natural evolution of the industry or it's just the natural migration of people that were used to working agencies over the client side I think I don't know. If, I don't know if clients themselves are learning. It's the same client who's just now learning, or is it now the clients are hiring agency people who have the knowledge of what happened in agencies to bring to client side. I don't know. I think it's a little bit of both. Yeah. Um, because personally, within my professional network, I have seen maybe about uh, thirty to 
40% maximum go over client side, mm-hmm. you That's know, true. and usually a lot of the people within that subset are the people that said, oh, I eventually want to go client side. Mm. And I do see that trend happening, right? Because yeah. they want somebody that kind of understands media. And as well, what I've seen start to happen is that clients are actually hiring people that know digital media. Yeah. So, um, you know, in the old days, the the people on the client side really needed to be traditional brand managers, you know, that were working with the creative agency. Yes. And, you know, of course, they knew that they were going to secure that primetime TV spot, but they were, yeah. you know, helping to kind of bring the brand ethos to life. Now, because of the media proliferation and specifically within digital there is a requirement, I do agree, for there to be that knowledge on the mm. client side. So um, now many of the clients that I work with, actually all the clients that I work with, have media managers. So, yeah. you know, they are people that have been classically trained within media. Um, they know media. They understand it. So they aren't afraid to ask the questions. Um, yes, that's very true. I think it just matters really how how smart the person is within digital and as well how much digital contributes to the overall media mix because that's something I've also seen um, since I've moved to Dubai. Um, You know, when I was at Merkel, all of our clients, we were 100% digital, uh, zero offline. And in fact, I had been 100% digital since I went to work at Datomi. So when I moved here, it was the first time since that first ever agency. Your offline I was came. also, you know, looking at client engagements with offline and, you know, less than 50% budget allocation towards digital. So mm. that was even a big change. So I think that, you know, now that clients here are starting to see the importance of digital and the impact that it's bringing yeah. to their actual business. I think that within the next year to two years, uh, we'll, we'll get a lot more questions. I hope so. I actually enjoy it. I think it's better because I think that's how you grow. One thing that's interesting is I, I thought about it because before, if you look at it, digital and marketing were always very separate, yes. right? Even, even when I study marketing, remember I, I studied my master's degree in marketing, I never studied digital. Right. So when, when companies would hire people for marketing, they would hire from someone from a traditional marketing background to come to be a brand manager or product marketing manager, whatever. And those people did not know ni- digital. Now, the more that on an academic level, digital and marketing become integrated. Now, the client side, when they come to recruit for marketing, it intrinsically comes with digital. Yeah. So I think also that, that contributes to that natural evolution. Yeah, I completely agree. Which is which is I think is good. I One thing that I always found when I first started off is that Having a client who doesn't ask or having a client who doesn't know is really boring. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's true. It's like, it's like yeah. I, can, I can tell them anything. I remember I used to, like, you, when, especially when you first learn digital, you learn the standard lines of digital, especially the standard, like, go-to phrase of programmatic. And I used to say, and then, like, client would be like, okay. I'd, yeah. be like, I'd be like, dude, question me. <laughs> I mean, I actually, I mean, I don't know if I should publicly um, mention this, but I will uh, just for fun. Yeah. But when I first moved here, I found found it quite challenging because I was asked questions within digital that quite frankly were so simple that I had never been asked before that it <laughs> it was really hard for me to answer even though it was like a simple question that I knew, you know, obviously yeah, yeah. how to answer it was just like when I was put on the spot to to answer such question it was I I found it quite difficult because I was yeah. so used to answering the more complex yes. questions, the technicalities exactly. and, you know, so, but at least, you know, the questions were being asked, as you said. Yeah, definitely. Um, you mentioned, 
we were actually talking about like we we working at Merkel and the way you just go by you go into media buying. Did you guys have? Because I don't know how. Because here we have a huge culture of commitments and media buying and trading mm. that really affects the way <clears throat> media plans are made. And and sometimes it's the ROI is not to the client; it's more to the agency or more to the supplier. And, the, and when you were in the states, New York and Chicago, do you kind of have those? Is commitment such a big thing there as it is here? So commitments exist, but not at all in the same way. Um, I was never at, you know, a big agency conglomerate. Obviously, Merkel at the time was an independent, privately owned company. And from my side, being a digital media director, I was never exposed to such things. Um, I obviously knew that, you know, we needed to have a s- hit certain spend levels with Google, for example, to maintain our DSP feeds. But commitments were never, ever an impact in terms of which partners we were choosing to put on a plan. In fact, we had actually developed a proprietary scorecard to evaluate and rank all of the media partners that we had met with. Yeah. Okay, um, wow, so, okay. for example, when we first launched with HBO, I think we had met with upwards of 50 to 60 media partners and wow. we all <laughs> sat in a war room literally like <laughs> i think we maybe you would put the you would put the publishers in the same room no no oh, no okay. no this was after we had met with them but like no, they're all gonna battle it no, out in the no, same no. room <laughs> of course not i guess that sounded like oh we put them in a war room no um ourselves my myself and the team we we went into a quote-unquote war room okay. where we went proposal by proposal i mean we spent you know hours maybe four hours going through it and individually ranking them and um ultimately generating a score so we had a very clear rationale and we were very easily able to build our strategy deck for why we even picked these partners to make it on the plan in the first place so you you remember what the metrics of the scorecard were yeah, we had a lot of different things related to the types of data that was available. So mm-hmm. uh, different partners were ranked based on their data availability. So, for example, if you were a partner that you know just had third-party data, you would probably score lower than a partner that had first-party proprietary data. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, that was one of the things that we looked at. We also looked at API integrations. So in terms of reporting and analytics, how easy is it for them to, you know, sink into mm. our reporting and API uh, tools? And then we also looked at things such as uh, activation. So, for example, can we buy the inventory programmatically? Can we not buy it programmatically? Uh, we also looked at the types of inventory that they had available. Yeah. So, for example, when we were looking at and putting together a DSP selection strategy, uh, we would run with multiple DSPs at once, but each DSP was on the plan for a reason and not necessarily really like to compete with each other. So, and, and this scorecard was great because, you know, yes, we evaluated all of these partners and maybe, you know, some of the partners didn't make it on the plan at the first go, but we had a very solid plan. And within the first one to two wow. months, if we weren't seeing performance from certain partners, we could easily drop them out and then we could know who we wanted to test you have, in. Because you have, you have literally ready scores. Exactly. All right, so, let's, let's say we lost a nine out of 10, get the eight. Exactly. For example, exactly. Right? It was yeah. based on a 10 point score. So, you know, we had everything substantiated. Yeah. It wasn't a, a big fight with the client. They, It was extremely clear and to the point they understood why each partner was going on the plan and they knew the partner. You know, it wasn't uh, like yeah. it was some partner that they had really never even heard of. Um, 
So that was one thing that I really enjoyed because I felt like it was yeah. a true unbiased uh, yeah. approach, if you, know, you will. I don't know if it's good or very bad that <laughs> I, I am astounded by this. <laughs> I don't know either. <laughs> but the fact is I've never heard of that before. Yeah. It's a bit... I don't know. If, I don't know. If it's a reflection of how bad I'm, how bad we are here, or or just because I don't know. I'm just kind of like shocked that that is such a simple and logical thing to do, but I've never heard of it before. Yeah, I mean, even we would uh, send out RFPs. Even every time we were working on a media plan, we would send out an RFP even to Google, Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat, you name it. The partners that wow, even, even to the, like the big, the, even the big partners, yeah. even though the people on my team were hands-on keyboard working within these platforms, buying media themselves, we still placed an importance on RFPing these partners because we knew that you know no matter how hard we tried to stay on top of all of the you know advancements that these partners are constantly making i mean nearly every week they yeah. have a slew of updates whether it's you know platform capabilities or targeting etc so we needed to rfp them to make sure that we were you know having the best of the best we were getting access to yeah. any alphas or beta opportunities that made sense for the campaigns that we were planning yeah that makes so much sense i really really like that approach i wish we were doing that here yeah don't you feel the problem is between let's say for example the middle east and there is because here you have a few conglomerates that hold the hold a chunk of the inventory for example, you'll have, for example, DMS, they have like, I don't know, 20 websites and you'll have ITP, they'll have 20 websites and you'll have, I don't know, all these different groups and they're holding it. So you kind of have to be like, all right, cool. And a lot of them, for example, don't put inventory on open exchange or it's really, or it's from the inventory or it's, yeah. or it's, or it's the low, or it's below the, below first page or whatever, below the full inventory or, or just not, not the best quality. So you kind of feel, all right, I have to do commitments because I have to get the best possible rate. Is that, is that why you think it's here? Is it just the lack of of competition it's just kind of like an oligarchy i think um to a degree yes mm. but i think it's also you know the budgets out here are much smaller for sure uh the budgets are smaller and the allocation towards digital is smaller and there is still that apprehension in terms of test and learn yeah so because a lot of the digital programs that i've at least been exposed to since i've been here are more or less in their infancy stage, mm -hmm. uh, the appetite to test from the client side isn't necessarily that great. Yeah. And so if you want to test with a certain partner, you do have you know a valid reason to go ahead and test you know a strategic partner out. Um, sometimes it's tough because there is this notion of being too afraid to fail. That's true. Um, I also do think that, as you mentioned, there are a few of the conglomerates that do hold kind of a bulk of that budget. And then, yes, you know, the commitments are, you know, more of a factor yeah. out here. And again, I think that that goes into the point that the budgets are smaller. So it's much tougher to kind of manage uh, yeah. the intricities of the different commitments that need to be need to be met yeah my, my always problem especially when i was still a planner and stuff i remember one specific time is where i put together a media plan that i felt was right for the client it, try, yes. it tried to maximize roi before i sent it out the training department came to me and completely changed the entire plan to to be able to not maximize ROI for the client to be able to hit the commitments they were missing for other accounts yeah and what ended up happening was a huge blow up because the client would not accept it and ended up going back to the original plan yeah. but then losing so much faith in front of the client and, I'm, and for me that moment i I'm like, 
this makes no sense. Yeah. The commitment game makes no sense. Are we are we doing commitments just so we can make the supplier happy or make arbitrage on the side or we try to make the client happy and generate ROI? I, I completely I, yeah. agree. Yeah. And I think that this would probably be the biggest area of focus for agencies within this region yeah. to creatively transform. Yes. I think that, you know, the agencies that decide to be bold and kind of step outside of the box and truly transform within this, you know, specific area are going to be the ones that are actually successful in the long term. In the long again, term, yeah. I think that this goes hand in hand with client success. So yes, that media 100%. plan that you mentioned, I would reckon that the media plan that the trading team had put together, you executed it. It probably didn't perform no. as well. And if you were probably to go back to your original plan and cross compare, your original plan probably would have performed yeah. better. So I think that you know, right now, because that is still kind of unfortunately a part of, you know, the agency world globally. I mean, agencies mm. globally do have commitments. Sure. So I think that as long as that remains a part of it, there will be this kind of balancing act um, in terms of meeting those commitments and, you know, putting the right partners on the plan. Yeah. Um, so that's something that, you know, I'm really focused on. And, you know, within my role, I am very focused and a strong advocate in terms of always, you know, strategy and what the best option is first. Regardless of, of what we have. Regardless. Yeah. I mean, I constantly am getting into battles because yeah. I'm very opinionated when it comes to, you know, really upholding the, the quality of the media plan and the quality of the digital plan for clients. Yeah, I think also... Above all. I think also then it would be very important that the traditional role of a trained director or, or a media buyer now has to shift. It does. It really has to be integrated within the strategists, between the, the the digital planners. I think now, before, also one thing I realized we'd love to do, we'd love to silo everything. Yes. So everyone sits in different places, everyone does his own thing, and no one talks to each other. But I think now that we're moving, hopefully transforming, and I hope the region is, is the fact that, for example, trading now needs to sit with digital, and they have to sit with strategy, yes. and they have to sit with the social, and they sit with creative, and they have to sit as a team and come up with the right thing that matches the commitments, but also generates ROI for a client that actually achieves the objective you're trying to do. So the roles have to, have to change, transform the as well. The roles have to change drastically. Yeah. I think even the role of a traditional digital planner is yeah. you know, really going to render itself useless uh, for a couple of reasons. First and foremost, more and more ad dollars are being transacted programmatically. Yes. And this transaction means means that you are having an audience first planning approach. So I think that, you know, people need to start really focusing on addressable audience planning from a totality perspective mm -hmm. versus, you know, platform by platform. Um, start from the totality and then when you get into the platform mix then you recreate these audiences within each of the platforms right yeah 100%. so i think that that's one big change that needs to happen um, i think that the other change that's starting to happen is because of the platforms themselves so the media activation mm -hmm. platforms the dsps even the social platforms are really becoming advanced i mean if you look at the trade desk for example they have AI that is fully built into their platform that's insane. Yeah, I mean, I've actually, smarter, they've been on my radar lately. It's smarter than anybody <laughs> at the agency, if you will. And they literally have the capability to build a full digital plan. For and, sure. I mean, even in the US, the trade desk is actually, you know, selling OTT inventories. Yes. So they're bridging the gap between, you know, linear TV and digital TV and, Etc. So they're really able to kind of plan cross channels. So 
within, you know, the trade desk, this AI that exists, I mean, they can build the plan. So that takes that away from the digital planner. And then even there's a component where a client can approve that plan and it generates the line items, which mm -hmm. is just ready for media activation. So I think that you'll see media platforms transform to be able to take on this capability. Yeah. And I think that really a digital planner is going to need to understand a platform strategy. So really, you know, selecting yes, the right platforms to 100%. put on the plan because each platform partner and representative that comes in and talks to you, right? They're an expert on their one own platform, but you need somebody who brings that together for the media plan yep, definitely. and understands, you know, kind of the macro setup and understands how, you know, looking at your your cross-channel frequency cap um, and, you know, how you're set yes. up within the ad server itself is going to impact these different things so that you can really try to, you know, minimize overlap, really deduplicate mm -hmm. across, you know, channel and, you know, optimize. Yeah. So I think that the media planner needs to transform to understand audiences from yes. an addressable, addressable standpoint and as well, platform execution. Hundred percent. You're the first person outside of myself who's ever used the term cross uh, cross channel frequency cap. Yeah. <laughs> I've never heard of anyone else. <laughs> I think frequency cap is a concept we do not have here, and it yeah. drives me insane. Yeah. Especially when you're talking about cross channel, people don't understand that. The I feel that we have so much wastage of impressions here. It's it's it really hurts me. We How do. Much, we, we waste so many impressions. Yes, actually, this is an initiative from Hearts and Science okay. globally. So, uh, it's kind of funny. My uh, former manager Megan Pagliuca okay. at Merkel, she is now the chief data officer of Hearts and Science Global. globally. Oh, that's awesome. Um, so it's kind of funny how we both ended up at Hearts after yeah. we worked at Merkel together. And you know, she's someone I've always kind of looked up to because. She is very bold in her opinions, and this is the exact topic that she's been talking about in the trades lately. Um, Interesting. She is talking about really trying to define the uh, cost per valuable impression. Mm. And the definition of valuable is what's critical here, right? So For it's sure. not just, you know getting a cheap cpm no, it's not. <laughs> you know it's a cheap really cpm and a, a good roi valuable yeah. actually means that you're getting you know uh that that you know conversion that you're getting from that cpm is actually also carries a high yeah. customer lifetime yes. value and that's something that you can back calculate into that you know initial you, can, yeah. you know valuable impression it's also looking at at the auction right so it's assessing you know that whatever you're winning that cpm at you're winning winning the bid is that the optimal price yes. because you know yeah. second price still does still exist first price obviously is new and you know is was your bid too high you know what i mean so the word value actually has a lot more than just cheap cpm no, for no. conversion so that's something yeah. that you know i'm also trying to look into um but it also requires a lot of data and it requires no, a lot of data yeah. crm data to yes, be able to 100%, and matching the two match it back have the full attribution one thing i realized again from my experience here i don't think we we look at how important every impression is because we yeah. think that we're buying these by volume so we treat them as cheap because yes. we're buying them volume and then we focus on other metrics like clicks and leads but thing is 
it always for me i way i look at it it all comes down to that one impression and every impression has a potential to generate an uh, a sale yeah and the fact that we don't look at it like that we just look at it as some kind of metric we don't even care about we don't even look at it for me i always like to look at impressions because for me every if i look at an impression i see a badly bought impression that's a potential lost sale yeah but i feel here we only care about things like leads or clicks or website visits or video plays and all these other metrics who i also think are very shallow and we actually forget there's actually a very insightful metric no one even cares about which is an impression yeah and i think we really overlook it and, and, and actually i'm working on an article right now hopefully it'll get published soon is i'm, oh, gonna, I'm okay. calling it the power of an impression oh cool because okay. i think impressions are so important yeah. and it's yeah. really i, I you know, it's the first time i actually heard of a cost per value impression that's a new that's a new term to me yeah so, look it up yeah, um i mean there's quite a few articles that have recently been released you know really talking about this whole notion i mean i don't i don't think the case has been cracked by a no. long shot no. um and especially because when you when you talk about impressions, it introduces that whole notion of duplication yes. again, um, which is yes. you know, the concept that we originally started off on, which is frequency as yes, well. Yes, cross-platform so, frequency. You know, camping. all of this kind of is, it, it, it all feeds into the, yes. the end goal. And 100%. so, yeah, I mean, I think that, it isn't something that's looked at here at all. <laughs> it's it's funny you said that clicks are looked at. That was one thing that astounded me yeah. um, because I have the philosophy: clicks are for kids. <laughs> <laughs> I like that one. I like it. I mean, it, it has been it. it has been proven time and time again that clicks are not a proxy for any valuable yeah. action no, to no. a business. Period. Period. I don't. So, um, I, I find it crazy that that's still being looked at. Um, so yeah, I'll be curious to hear your article yeah. when, or read your article when yeah, you release it. Yeah, still a work in progress. But the, um, for sure, the hardest thing to crack is that full attribution because one thing I still think that we, we haven't looked at, I think also a reason why we look at things like clicks and leads, by the way, I think leads are one of the most shallow metrics yeah. out there. <laughs> yeah. and for, for, and when I was, and, but that's so funny, I didn't even realize that till I went client-side. Oh, so when okay. I was an agency, I I am a product of the industry I was in, Yeah. right? But I had something I felt that most didn't have was a curiosity to learn more. So I was taught that, you know what, generate the clicks, generate the leads, the client will be happy. But then I always looked at further. But then when I really went client side, I had an intrinsic um, curiosity to follow the lead. And I started following leads. And I started following data. And I started realizing, all right, cool, these leads aren't going anywhere. Yeah. So the agency thinks they're doing their job. That's then I started realizing, you know what? When you actually give me that lead, it's like thirty percent of the journey. Yeah. There's still another seventy or eighty percent that lead has to go to get to the sale. And if that lead, if that lead, which came from a click, which came from impression, if that impression was bought wrong, that sale's not going to happen. This is where you know it is increasingly important that agencies and clients are working more and more closely yeah. together because the thing is is that from the agency perspective the most that we can really control quite frankly is driving that lead 100%. once we drive that lead that lead is crm that's going into your yes. database and at that point we don't really have a hand in terms of controlling whether or not that lead was called uh, we don't even know the attributes of that lead yes. 
that, you know, make it a high quality lead for you, for example. So maybe there are specific parameters that the person input um, into the detail form that would trigger something in your system that would say, oh gosh, this person yeah. has, you know, a 90% chance of converting within the next week. Yes. Or maybe that, that ranking, quite frankly, isn't being done. No, but uh, in any case, this is where I think it's very important because, uh, the media agency, you know, we aren't really able to optimize effectively without this information. 100%. Because 100%. if we don't know what happens to the lead after it's generated, then, you know, we wouldn't know where exactly. the best leads are coming from, for yes. example. So maybe Facebook is driving horrible leads. Yes. Horrible. For example. And maybe, you know, your own website is driving super strong leads through our search ads, for yep. example. So maybe we would want to shift our budgets accordingly. Agree. I mean, but these are the pieces of the information that unfortunately haven't made yes. it made Clients it back are to us. equally accountable yes. for this thing. It, it cannot be only agencies. Exactly. This is why I've become very a big proponent of these 360 agencies that also, for example, handle CRM. Yeah. Because yeah. then they have everything. I agree. And, you know, this is where, quite frankly, um, it's also important, like that information when it's coming back to us, that we action upon it and that we make it very mm. clear to the client that actually your CPL will more than likely increase. Yes, a thousand percent. This, yes. We are going after the more yes. valuable people. So, you know, I wanted to bring up that point because I think that, you know, a lot of times I see clients really wanting the cheapest. Cost CPL. per action, yep. cost per order. I want the cheapest, cheapest, 100%. cheapest. But you know where we really need to advance and level things up is yes. looking at value, looking at customer yep. lifetime value, and you know, quite frankly, if you know somebody, for example, becomes a loyalist for your brand and they are ordering and they are maintaining, you know, a high purchasing rate. Maybe we don't even need to invest our money into yes. reaching out to them. Maybe we need to reach out to other people that have lapsed for, say, three months. 100%. So, That's something I've been trying to work on in my current position is I'm trying to shift the understanding. Uh, I don't know if it's an actual metric. I kind of made it up, but I've been hearing it's an actual metric. It's cost per quality lead, CPQL. Yes, yes Is that an is. actual metric? Yes, oh, cool. I actually just ended, <laughs> yeah. I, I ended up logically getting no, there, but I actually never found is. it. So there you go. I couldn't pass it that. <laughs> anyway, so uh, I, start, I, well, I would tell my marketing partners, but listen, you want CPQL. Yes. If you can, but the, the more you drop CPQL, the more you increase CPL. Yeah. It, that's how it works. Yeah. They're inversely related. Exactly. So it depends on what you want. Yeah. Do you want CPL or do you want CPQL? Because I could give you a, I could give you a 30 cent CPL, but then your sale, your cost per sale is going to be through exactly. the, through the roof. Your, your cost per quality is going to be through the roof. What do you want then? I think that's where clients need to understand. And I think either agents, we have to educate them or I don't know, something has to happen where clients are very accountable. That they we, are. we need to stop sending briefs out saying I need this many leads at this much CPL. We have to stop sending those out completely. We gotta be like, this is my objective. For example, let's say I'm real estate. Okay, cool. I have ten units to sell. That's gonna be your end result. Work backwards to the logical thing. Don't don't start with how many leads you want. Don't yeah. be like, I need a thousand leads. Well, why do you need a thousand leads? Cool. What are you trying to sell? You want to sell tele ten apartments? All right, cool. And you historically try to work your way backwards to a quality place that that could be logical all the way down to an impression. That's the way we gotta go go to it. Yeah, exactly. And on that note of quality, I think it's extremely important because, you know, as you just mentioned, the CPL will increase oh, yeah. as your CPL, you know, is prioritized. Yeah. And I think that that's the end thing that clients need to realize is that 
when we stop driving volumes of leads, for example, just for the sake of having high volumes of leads, we actually benefit the client operations, right? Yes, of course. It puts less stress on the team to follow up with so many fruitless leads that are a road to nowhere. So, 100%. You know, I think that this shift um, has to be realized and has to be looked at uh, kind of from all sides of the fence. All sides. Uh, That's something I've been saying for a while because if you look at it, it all kind of links together. But I realized also when I was agency, I would blame the clients. But when I went clients, I realized clients have a lot of pressure on them as well from their upper manager. For example, you'll get clients that their direct boss or CEO or board, for example, wants, hey, why aren't you guys generating enough leads? So, and that affects their, the way they put out the brief. That affects the way the agency buys. It's all, it's all linked. Yeah. It's a butterfly effect across the entire and then chain. And at the end of the day, not to no mention that uh, media attribution typically is less. Not, I mean, I haven't seen a brand where media attribution is 50% to sales, you know? Yes. So, uh, you know, not all the responsibility lies on media at the end of the day. No, no, it all goes out. But even, for example, the way the lead is treated when it comes in by the CRM team, that's also something you got to look at. It all exactly. connects. It all connects. It does. And we need, and we need people to start realizing it's, it's, we we're not siloed. Mm-hmm. Everything actually connects and everything relates to everything. And, and we have to all improve together if you really want that end objective, which is sale, for yeah. example. Exactly. And I think that's, you know, kind of where we're going here in the Middle East because obviously e-commerce is starting to boom. Um, I mean, the mobile penetration here is unlike anywhere else in the world. That's true. Um, So I hope, I'm I'm optimistic to see this change start to take place uh, because I I think that if we we don't move concurrently, you know, with what's already happening in terms of being future thinking, and being already at that advanced state, even though a lot of e-commerce programs, for example, are just now launching for the first time, we will lose out to competitors. For sure. It was so funny when you were talking about when you were in 2012, 2013, the things you were doing. I'm like, wow, that's something I we just started yeah. doing here. Yeah. So we're a good like six, seven years behind exactly. to what New York is or, yeah. or Chicago or the yeah. rest of the world, which is which is interesting. I really hope we catch up faster. Me too. Um, one thing actually we talk, we touched base on, we're talking about consulting, the way they, they build. How, what's your take on what's going on right now with Accenture in the States and how it's now moving into the media buying? What do you think about it? I mean, quite frankly, I think they're being quite smart. Uh, They have seen an opportunity and they're going after it. Accenture obviously understands pure consulting from a business perspective, which is something that's incredibly beneficial when you bring it to the media side, Mm -hmm. right? Because it kind of rounds out that whole 360 view of, again, looking at that media contribution to sales. And as I just mentioned a couple minutes ago, Oftentimes, media contribution is far less than 50% to total sales of a business. So because Accenture kind of understands true business operations, they understand, you know, all of the verticals. I mean, they have vertical specialists across every category. I think that they were quite smart to see that, um, you know, they could couple that, that knowledge with, you know, media and marketing. Yeah. So... Um, quite frankly, I think that what they're doing in terms of the acquisitions that they've made and you know the value prop that they've built is smart. I think that one thing that I haven't yet seen um, is really the the true execution of it. Yeah. So 
I haven't really heard yet of a very successful use case. Um, I mean, I'm sure that they're being successful, right? Yeah. You know, otherwise, they wouldn't be you know, able to acquire all these companies. But uh, I am curious to see how they sure. evolve in the next uh, one to three years. Yeah. What, one thing that was interesting was, I, I was I actually did an, an article about this. If you guys want to check out LinkedIn, is where I was talking about Accenture for the longest time was auditing media accounts, even yeah. before even acquired, even before yeah. Open Accenture Interactive, even before it uh, got into really proper media buying, even before they acquired Drogo Five, they were auditing because they were auditors. Yeah, they were auditing media accounts, and I think throughout the years they were doing that, they realized, hold on, there's we should get into this because there's some money to be made here. It was, yes. I think it was a logical sense for them. And they were realizing that clients were complaining about agencies. They realized all this transparency issues going on. And because they've, they've, they've already put themselves up, you know what? We're going to bill hourly. We're, we, they exactly. have the consulting mentality and clients are cool with that. Now with Droga 5, with Accenture Interactive, they've kind of become full 360. And I think they also what they also implement CRM, yes. manage CRM. They do everything now. Yeah. And they, and they can easily be like, all right, cool. We're not going to arbitrage. We're just going to do consulting hours. Yeah, exactly. And make millions that way. And even they're at an advantage to work with the clients that actually are interested in in-housing. Yes. And come up with hybrid models, which I really think is going to be how things are executed in the future. Mm -hmm. I think that we're going to see more and more hybrid models that are, you know, being at the forefront of client agency consultancy engagements. Mm. And I think that the consultants are poised to speak to that in a very positive manner. Yeah. Um, so I completely agree with you. Well, one thing I found weird is that Accenture here is very quiet. Yes. And I don't know why. I'm not sure either. <laughs> I, I keep, I, I've, been, I've been tracking, I even reached out to someone from Accenture to see if, if she will come on the podcast. I hope she does. Because I would love to talk to them. Like, I know, because there's Accenture Interactive here. Yeah. So technically, there is that entity, but they've been very quiet. Yes. I don't know why. Like, Accenture in the States is making a huge splash. They're everywhere right now. You know, I'm not sure. Yeah, it's um, very interesting. I mean, right? I've seen some of the MDs speak at uh, different events here, but outside of that, not much. Yeah. It's very, very interesting. I hope, I hope. I hope we get there because I think it's it is a kind of competition that agencies are, need to be able to evolve here. Exactly. We need that kind of competition for agencies to change. They have to realize that the model we're working on will no longer last, and and oh, we're gonna start losing pitches and stuff because of this new entity coming in. Yeah. I think we need that. Did you hear that? Uh, I think it was what is it? WPP and IPG have stopped allowing uh, Accenture to audit the accounts in the states because oh, yeah, no, they're I didn't see they're that. boycotting audits by wow. Accenture, and I think. Um, Omnicomfort, which group now is now also boycotting all pitches that have Accenture in it. Yeah, I think I read that. Yeah, they just now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I'm like, why are you guys doing it going that way? Yeah. Evolve, change. If Accenture's getting into your game, you get into their game. Yeah. Why not evolve? Yeah. I'd love to see an agency, for example, that implements a CRM, implements a marketing cloud, runs it for the client if they don't want to, or helps them in house and does all the media buying. It does creative and does the PR. Why not? Why not? Yeah, I agree. I, I know. I mean, it's it's interesting and it's funny because when we talked about my initial experience, yeah. right, where I was at a 360 yeah. agency, um, you know, I almost feel like we're at a point where there will be a revolution where, you know, agencies did split off to yes. separate media and creative. And I almost feel like we're at a point where they're starting to come back together. I hope so. Um, you know, we at least have worked with our creative agency partners, uh, sister companies within quite a few pitches. And I think it's smart. I mean, it makes sense. It makes I don't, so much sense. I don't know why it wouldn't happen because actually you need to inform uh, the creative teams about what's happening within yeah. digital for it to perform 
properly. I mean, 100%. example, you always see TVCs that are becoming digital video ads and it just doesn't work. No, it doesn't so work. Um, I do think that you're you're right. You know, yeah. the, the door is open for agencies to kind of, you know, see what the consultancies are doing and, and take a decision to pivot and transform. And, yeah. you know, I hope that the transformation happens. Um, I hope so. I, I hope to be a part of it. Yeah, I hope to same. see it. I'm sure I will. But when it will happen and how it will happen, I'm not sure. Um, I just still sense that there is quite a bit of fear that yes. and change resistance that gets in the way of actually making true yeah. transformation. I think the fear is that we're going to be losing this money-making model we put together, this arbitrage model we put together, that now we're, we're afraid what's going to happen next. I think exactly. that's that fear. You know, oh, we're going to lose our millions. We're going to lose our billions now because we can't arbitrage. And arbitrage here, I don't know how bad arbitrage in the States because I know there's still around the world there's arbitrage as part yes. of the media, but I think here is really bad. I think so too. I don't know how about... Like for example, I, I, was, I went to... Um, I've got... Um, the Mexico Festival in in, oh, yeah. in, in Germany. Yeah, yeah. Did you go last year? No, I All didn't. Right. I, I, I got lucky enough to go last good. year. It was really yeah. good. Someone came up and it was pretty interesting because the guy was, I think from an agency in the States, I forgot which one, and he was talking about how you lose 60% of your CPM to all the fees before you get to the media buy. True. Yeah, and that's before arbitrage. Yes. So then I realized, man, okay, even with so even with arbitrage, how much percentage that we're losing here? Because of course you have your tech fee. I, when, when me and Chris had a whole laugh about this. <laughs> yeah. We were talking about tech fee. And DSP fees, SP fees, ad server fees, uh, data fees, and all these level of fees that are all part of a CPM that no one really talks about. Yeah, brand and then, safety. Yeah, you have all this stuff. And then viewability. Yeah, is it possible? I don't know. I'd love to get your thought. I've actually asked my agency to do this. I don't know if they got back to me. I need to check. But is it possible? So let's say you you put a CPM on programmatic, right? You do yeah. your study. You come up, let's say, with a ten. Let's say mm -hmm. a ten dollar CPM. Is it possible to be able to break down that $10 CPM into all the layer of fees and then show the final media buy? Yeah. Is it final to do that in a, in a planning phase? Actually, I prefer to plan opposite of what you just mentioned. Okay. So uh -huh. I prefer that uh, basically when it comes to DSP planning, that you plan the audience and okay. you plan the tactic. So okay. effectively the tactic, whether it's prospecting or remarketing, for example, would drive... Uh, what you would more or less bid for that particular user. Yeah. So, for example, within e-commerce, if it is a uh, remarketing line item, mm -hmm. you would probably want to bid more. Of um, course, because he's lower down the exactly. funnel, right? And in a first price auction, that would mean that your CPM is going to be higher, yes. for example. So, uh, you know, the thing is, is it's tough to say what the CPM would be, right? Because yes. you're in a dynamic bidding yes. situation. So. You can forecast what the CPM will be against that specific audience across the open mm -hmm. exchange. And so then that's the CPM that I would put on the plan. But that From CPM there, is still comprised of all these no, things, no? No, it's not. It's not. That's what I'm getting okay. into. So that's just the sheer cost. That's of the a pure impression. buy. Okay. Just the impression for this particular audience. Okay. Then on top of that, yes, you would have the DSP fee. Yeah. Then on top of that, you would have the ad serving fee. Yes. And that's where actually there is another component of uh, the fee being dynamic because um, at least since I've been you know, working in the space, ad servers have a different fee based on ad format. Yes. Video, rich 100%, 100%. media, and standard banners. So uh, then that fee is completely different. And then, of course, if you have an element of a third-party viewability partner, mm -hmm. such as Moat or IES, yeah. tacked onto it, 
Um, so then, you know, here I've just named what three fees yes. that doesn't even include a data fee. If yes. You're choosing to target specific data sets. So, you know, that's four fees that is, you know, being added to a, a non-fixed CPM. Yes. So from my side, I, because I do truly believe in media transparency yes. 100%, I always think it's best to get a general direction of the budget from the client mm -hmm. that we plan that budget accordingly to your to your business goals and, and objectives or we could you know recommend a budget and we plan and we buffer the fees That's way to do it. and if we're managing the media live within our platforms even within social okay. for example yeah. because uh, we use a PMD partner called 4C to buy across mm -hmm. all social partners and they of course have a platform fee yes of course so you know, we we manage that and, you know, you can see as okay. you're buying the media and pace the media, okay, am I on target to stay within the amount that the client has given me or am I not? And then, you know, kind of month over month, you would then yeah. true up the budgets. But, you know, this way of thinking isn't really possible here because no, it's not. the finance departments operate in an extremely antiquated way For and sure. they're very fixated on a singular PO or purchase order. Yes. And, you know, those POs are often, you know, one campaign at a time. Yes. And unfortunately, that's just not how digital media works. No. And it's not effective use of spending that money. So then we're actually forced to, you know, plan the media in somewhat of an inefficient mm. way that causes overlap. Um, because you have to, have to premeditate to everything, but then in reality, you're actually missing out on the real time basis. Ex exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. The way the way you said it makes the most logical sense to me. But funny yeah. enough, I and every agency I've ever worked on never did it that way. <laughs> oh, really? No. Yeah. I used to put a CPM that was given to me by my trading desk, and then I would put a technology CPM rate at the bottom. That will basically be based on that, and that will be your ah, PO. Okay, no, I mean because we're transparent, we're transparent in those fees as well. Yeah. So, uh, so you let your you let your client know beforehand. Listen, um, this is this is this is what we're. So you have to we have to put some kind of plan together. So you have to tell them what you're trying to achieve, right? And then you kind of tell them, all right, because of this, there's going to be a buffer of plus or minus ten thousand that we need to put for fees, for example. And they, we'll we'll only know the actual amount later on. I mean, more or less, kind of we do, do give the rough estimate of, yes. of what the fees will be. Yeah, but and obviously, but that's not fixed in stone. That. Yeah. We, we end up staying within that. I mean, I was only kind of giving that uh, case as like the most forward thinking case. Is that how they do it in like the States, for example? Yeah, exactly. So it's, all, it's kind of all like real time. Yeah. So there's I mean, no there's no like PO that has to go before out, right? Or like some PR that's raised. Basically, our clients would authorize us to buy media on their behalf in the form of a legal contract. So okay. it was a media buy authorization form. Okay. It was a legal contract that, you know, our legal teams worked out, looked at all the T's and C's, mm -hmm. you know, in terms of payments, etc. And we were authorized to say spend a hundred million dollars for our client within you know, 2019, for example. Okay. So then we would effectively media plan across that $100 million for the full year. And you guys will basically front the money and, and you pick e it up later. E exactly. And we would we would plan and we would plan, you know, what we wanted to do. We'd get alignment on the plan. And then month over month, we were, 
kind of truing up those budgets. Okay. So close to month end, we would send the client a forecast of what we thought we would spend and how okay. we'd end the month. And then, you know, once the month closed, we were very, it was very easy. We would just pull a platform yeah, report super easy. or a partner report. I mean, we like, this know what we exactly achieved, what we it. spent and uh, anything that we had billed them above that, you know, because we would close the month maybe four days before the month ended. Anything that we build above, obviously our, our finance team is reconciling that month over for month. Sure. So if you went, for example, say a million over this month, that's gonna have to that means you have to reallocate, you have to readjust for the next month or the month after for exactly. the So you hit within your hundred million for the for the year. Yeah, exactly. And you guys kinda of pay to the platforms yourselves and you kinda of reimburse that from the clients after the actuals are done. Yeah, right? I mean we were paid on a monthly basis yes. for sure. Um but uh yeah the way But the billings we were, were coming from like the billings to the platform were coming from the agency. I mean more so the yeah. point is is that the way that we were spending our clients money was from the client for example let's say you know client x was authorizing us to spend a million dollars in 2019 for them mm. that was the total money and then we could split it based on all of the different campaigns that were coming and you guys make the call exactly because you guys are experts i mean here. not that we made the call but like the client also made the dictated tactical campaigns for so, sure for example if we had always on digital that was driving performance of course, there were tactical launches that came into that and they said, oh, okay, we need to spend 250K. But we knew that we had that $100 million that was for always on digital, driving yeah. performance that you know we could use effectively to account for seasonality. So mm -hmm. maybe I was a little bit confusing when I just explained that. Mm -hmm. So uh, you know, we really focused on having always on digital media. For sure. And again, driving that performance output, but then obviously we'd have tactical launches. So yes. my point with this is that you need, here- You need a PO to be raised first, basically. Exactly. Here, the clients are more operating in you know these specific periods of time for specific campaigns where- you know, that's not really real life with consumers and the consumer journey. True. Right? So uh, we had much higher efficiencies when we were able to kind of run our budgets and manage our budgets sure. in this manner. But also, it also doesn't coincide in, in exactly how media buying should go. Right. It, it is it is basically, here's the PO, here's what we're going to give you, and that's how you kind of do it. And also because also internally you have finance departments that also work in this archaic way as well. Yeah. Exactly. Are you able to change? Are you trying to change it or is it, or is it kind of like... Trying to change it. Okay. Um, have made, you know, some big strides okay, with awesome. one of our clients. Uh, you know, one of our clients actually here in MENA, we have an always-on uh, campaign that's running and we actually have the always-on PO to support it. And they've it. authorized you to we buy media we, for the we year. We received it in April of this year and we have it till the end of the year, which is great. That's and awesome. You know what? We have actually seen that our uh, CPAs have gone down massively. And again, this is because what I think a lot of clients don't understand is they don't understand uh, performance media and actually how the activation platforms work. <laughs> and that when you start and stop a campaign... Uh, you lose just a little bit of the insights and the algorithm restarts. Granted, it's not a huge loss. And from you know a consumer-facing perspective, if you make that change within a day, you don't appear to be not always on, right? Yeah. But from a back-end platform activation perspective, when you are you know, resetting up the campaign just to accommodate a new purchase order mm -hmm. number, you are effectively restarting that algorithm. 100%. And... 
you know, we, we had calculated the exact quantity of sales loss by doing this. And that's how we were able to convince what the was, client. Don't, don't, what was the percentage? Oh gosh, I think it was around, uh, I mean, it, it wasn't like outlandish. It was maybe like, 10 or so percent that enough to make a difference but that's enough you uh -huh, know yeah. when, when in a, you're in when a market you're looking like this to, yeah. to find new efficiencies and again make better use of you know your budgets uh, and make those budgets you know put forth more more performance you need savings like 100%. this i've never thought about it from the financial billing point of view but even that has a butterfly effect to media buying look at look at how everything affects everything exactly that's that's, that's crazy <laughs> That, that's gonna give me a lot, a lot to think about. Um, we were talking about you, you mentioned actually blockchain. Yeah. And I've I've did some research and I've reached out to a few suppliers out in the states. Um, we're starting to get into blockchain in programmatic media buying. Mm -hmm. Do you think is do you, have you heard anything that has made a significant stride yet? I haven't, to be honest okay. with you. Um, I haven't seen or heard of much. Uh, that has really made an impact yet. Okay. Um, it is something I'm kind of looking out for because I'm I'm really curious, quite frankly, how the application will work. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. I mean, I, I think that it will be something that we'll see more in 2020. Um, yeah. Because I haven't really seen too no, much. No, nothing, nothing has really made a big splash. Yeah. I mean, I recently read an article that talked about how blockchain will impact more industries outside of just media. Um, but... Yeah, I haven't really seen anything don't, yet. Don't you think the problem with... So actually, one, one thing, two years ago, I reached out to... I forgot who, who their name was. And I was asking them about blockchain. Because obviously with blockchain, there's also a delay, right? While, while programmatic might be quick, nanoseconds, whatever, milliseconds. Right. While blockchain is a bit longer because of the actual blockchain itself, right? And the amount of data it holds. Right. And they were saying that they actually go through batching. So they batch it out. Okay. Which basically cuts down on actual time lost. Which was pretty interesting, but I don't I don't remember them making a big splash either. So I forgot, I forgot their name. I reached out to them on Twitter. Hmm. Yeah. I if, I, if I remember, I'll let you know. So what do you think is the future of our industry here? I think, quite frankly, the future of our industry here is one that really is going to require immense transformation. Yeah. And I think that it is transformation that is required at multiple sides. Um, it's first the clients themselves. So the actual brands need to transform. Yeah. Uh, they need to uh, become fearless. They need to take the risk. Yes. And they really need to um, transform multiple departments within their own organization. Um, so I think that you know when you look at the companies themselves, there's not just organizational transformation in terms of structure. I also think that there's employee transformation in terms of skill sets yes. and assessing the skill sets that exist. Are they the right skill sets that you need? Are they not? How do we upskill? And then I also think that from a finance perspective, as we just talked about, there's a lot that a needs lot, to happen yeah. in terms of transformation. I also think that there needs to be an IT transformation. 100%. So IT um, is something that really is not ever present uh, whatsoever within media and marketing. And I think that that infusion needs to happen. So that's one thing, I th you know, in terms of client perspective. I also think that we need to see agency transformation. So transformation in terms of, you know, really being uh, more consultative in terms of doing yes. the right things for the clients. Um, I think that, you know, we've already covered so many topics about the agencies yes. and, you know, transparency versus not being transparent, uh, commitments, et cetera. And I think that, 
you know, really the that agencies here need to also take a risk to stand up for what is right, um, to stand up for, you know, transforming to actually, you know, be competitive with the consulting firms. Yes. Uh, because right now, as we just mentioned, even we're not seeing too much of a dent or really an impact from the consulting firms. So agencies have a chance right 100%. now. And they have a chance to prevent that from happening within this region Definitely. in specific. Um, and then finally, I think that really the the last transformation that exists is completely within talent. Yes. Um, I think that, you know, really talent themselves, uh, you know, it doesn't matter what field you're in, but if you have a passion for digital, if you have a passion for marketing, for transformation, I think that, you know, the industry needs people that are smart, uh, yes. that are confident, and that really are very articulate in terms of laying out a plan and convincing people of mm -hmm. this plan. Um, I think that there's a lot of politics to, you know, unfortunately wade oh, yeah. through. And I think that, you know, it takes a lot of patience, um, unfortunately. But I really think that, you know, look, we're coming into 2020. I don't think that there can be an excuse any longer. No. I mean, I have still sat on panels where people are discussing the meaning of programmatic. And quite frankly, I think that this region just needs to put a, a, a stake in the ground and say enough is enough. Yeah. And we need to change and we need to change now. Um, yeah. You know, I recently attended Google Marketing Live and you know, basically the president of Google for America has said such a powerful quote. I mean, I don't remember the quote word for word. It's not my LinkedIn because I absolutely loved it. But it basically said that we are at such a great separation point. We are at such a huge divide with companies where companies are either, you know, capitalizing on their own data or they're not. Yes. They're capitalizing on the changes that are taking place or they're not. They're taking you know, transformation seriously or they're not, and et cetera. And the companies that are not are effectively so far behind that that great divide is like even harder for them oh, for to sure. overcome. For so sure. I really, you know, hope that this region, I hope that, you know, a fire and a passion gets ignited in, in people and that we just stop, you know, making excuses. We stop taking the time and we just go for it. Yeah, no fear. Let's just I do think, it. I think it's going to end up taking a few individuals to say, you know what? I don't care about the repercussions. I'm <laughs> yeah. just going to say the truth. Um, I don't, I would don't mind being one of those people. Yeah, I, hope, I hope, I hope I get, I hope I get that <laughs> privilege too. to be that kind of person. <laughs> one thing I did kind of want to wrap it up, but then I remember yeah. two points I did want to talk to you about yeah. is data, yeah. which is, which is so important is first party, third party data. Yeah. Right. And, and this is something that I've learned myself. Agencies, I think, in general, function on third party data as a basic, as a crux of it. Right. Or it originally started. Well, clients basically function on first party. Right. What I'm realizing now more and more is obviously now with third party constraints, uh, compliance, GDPR, yeah. all these uh, GD, uh, third party data is now going to get is going to be worse. I don't know worse is the right word, but it's going to be it hard is. to use, I mean, worse to use. There was just an article, I think, yesterday about Apple. Um, yes. Even about, tightening so, their, On Safari, right? Exactly. Yes. They're all going to tighten yes. it up. Um, so obviously, third party is not going to be waiting for it. It's, it's first party. And one thing I learned, and I always tell my agency friends to do is, is stop, because uh, it's so funny. Even I went through a transformation with the second I left agency to the client side, which is why I'm very happy I did that change, is it opened my eyes to things I was did not realize I was doing in agency. Hmm. So when I was agency, I was only focused on third-party data. 
So when I moved to client side, I started realizing, realizing first party data and really the power of first party data to the point is that I've completely shifted my way of thinking now and I only think about first party data right. with third party data only being a feeding to getting first party data. Yeah. How can agencies, can, can agencies in any way start focusing on first party data and is the only way to do it is, is it, it's, it from what I say, a big part of it has to do with CRM. Absolutely. Um, so yes, a big part of it obviously has yeah. to do with CRM, but um, not necessarily. Okay. Um, I think, you know, there's a lot of, you know, importance that's not currently placed on sheer ad operations. Mm -hmm. And by that, I mean, actual tagging and tracking so of, first part cookie data, of I mean. a client's website of a client's mobile application. Um, yes, I mean, I know it is still cookie data, but it's for, yeah, it's still it first is party. still first party. And, yeah. you know, the more robust that that setup is in yeah. terms of the pixel implementation and the custom parameters that are being captured, the better that we can understand, we being the agencies, in terms of the consumer journey. And we can kind of, you know, see that consumer journey if we look at the different analytics 100%. tools, such as Analytics 360 or Adobe Analytics, and see, uh, you know, exactly what's happening. So in the absence of CRM, which, you know, since I've been in this region, CRM, it's been, you know, I've had some clients that are all in. They're literally sending us, you know, every iota of data that hmm. you could imagine. And then other clients where they're so fearful of sending any CRM data, so even though it's, you know, completely, you know, encrypted, it's blinded, there's no PII that's being revealed to anybody, but yet the apprehension exists. So in the absence of CRM, I do still think that your actual digital media tracking and that first party yeah. data needs to be as robust as possible. 100%. I feel that we don't understand how important first party data is here. I yeah. don't think we're there from client to agency. There isn't that understanding, but there's also that stigmata, right? Yes. Because there have been, you know, so the, the few instances that have blown up in the news have made people fearful mm. that they don't want to take the decision. And then, you know, in the off chance that it backfires, then they're the person that's held accountable yeah. for that. No, let's transition to something I've been wanting to get your opinion yeah. on is what do you think about email and SMS communication? In terms of what? <laughs> is it? Do you think it's useful, uh, effective, ineffective? I, I'll transition to something else. I just want to get your initial. I think that uh, it can be useful. Mm -hmm. I think that it needs to be used in a purposeful manner. 100%. Um, you know, when it comes to email, I actually had exposure to email marketing uh, at Merkel. And I think that uh, there are too many marketeers, especially within the retail category, that just bombard people. 100%. I mean, you go online, yeah. you shop. I look at a couple of, you know, pairs of sneakers on online. And within minutes of, you know, going away from the cart, I have an email saying, oh, you left something in the cart. I mean, this is a little bit too much in my mm. opinion. So I think that there needs to be a carefully curated strategy yes. um, that's not too much. Yes. And similarly with with SMS. And, you know, again, this comes down to the personalization impact yes. and utilization of data. It's understanding your customer and understanding what they respond yeah. to and then choosing the communication channels yeah. to reach them. The reason why I asked you that and the reason why I transitioned from first party mm. data to that topic is when I was in agency, we used to do email SMS. When I say that, I mean, we used to go to a, a vendor yeah. Who'd have a list. Yeah. That I don't even know how he acquired it. And basically <laughs> right. we'll send it and be like, all right, cool, we'll send it. And then it wouldn't perform. So all my life I've been hearing email SMS doesn't work well. I even went to client side. Uh, people say email SMS doesn't work well. But I said, hold on a second. 
let's look at the actual tools themselves. The tools themselves are not wrong. Right. It's the data that's going. There's something exactly. wrong with the data. You know what I mean? So if you use third-party data and you buy it from a vendor, you're, you're you're basically sending an email or SMS to someone who never who never even gave you their information in the first place, and they're going, you know, why am I getting this? Stop unsubscribe, and that's why you're getting all these bounce backs and, yeah, and exactly. deletions. This is why I think that this actually supports your hypothesis that yeah. you said earlier in the podcast that you really believe that agencies that are 360 in their offering, especially that can manage CRM. Yeah have you know a very significant advantage Mm -hmm. and this is true this is why i mean you can't trust in my opinion i mean sorry to say this but i don't believe really in these third-party vendors where you utilize their email list again their sms list where you have no clue how they got it you have no idea how often they're you know removing people that uh who opted out or opted out etc so it is important for again if, if you are purposeful with it and the only way that you can be purposeful is if you are analyzing the crm and if you are looking at that consumer journey across all of the touch points so you know and really defining your communication strategies so i agree with you i mean i think that you know these channels can be effective and i think that the agencies or the companies that have kind of the capability to utilize crm in this fashion across all of these channels strategically are really poised to do great oh, work. Oh, yeah. The reason, 100%. It really hit me, and it's so funny how it hit me. It was a year and a half ago, and I was just researching. I was, You know, I, I like to read random things, how I am. And I jumped onto an article of, of Kevin Hart, the comedian. Yeah. And you remember at one point, Kevin Hart came out of nowhere, and yeah. he blew up. He was he was doing stand-up for years, and then out of nowhere, you start seeing him in movies, and, stand, and he just blew up. Do you know why? I actually found out reason why. No, I don't. Kevin Hart did something <laughs> that no comedian was doing, and the, the sheer logic of it blew my mind away every stand-up show he would have he would have his assistant or his or his girlfriend wife at the time walk up to every single person that used to sit there and ask for their email address oh he would manually write down every email address of everyone that came to his stand-up be it 100 people or a thousand people to the point is he generated a first party email list of tens of tens of thousands so when it came time that he was about to blow up he would send communication those people with discounted offers to his show and he basically went from being completely unknown to being a massive superstar yesterday. Wow. So the use of first party email is look look at that. Yeah. And it blew, that, when I when I researched that I'm like, wow, that completely changed my perspective. And it's so a funny because it's actually as you said, very logical. So logical. I mean, why why wouldn't you do that, right? Yeah. Um but it, so it is kind of funny how simplistic it is yet uh, such a simple step isn't really being done. No. So. And so for me, that changed my... I'm like, that is the most the simplest and the smartest thing he did. Yeah. People gave the email willingly. So when they got email from Kevin Hart, they're like, yeah, because I gave him my email. Right. But that's because also I would assume that Kevin Hart was using their email address in a way that was okay with that person. Oh, for sure. He you would send him timings mean? of his show. Because exactly. he came to show that they're interested. He would tell him the timing of his shows, when he's going to be exactly. next up here. It was relevant. And he, and, he, and he basically blew up. And that was a big reason why. Right. And I give I give him so much respect. He's never going to hear this podcast. But if he does in, in a thousand <laughs> years, respect. You never know. You never know. <laughs> and uh, and it's just for me, it was that that would, that made so much sense. And email and SMS are so useful if the data we put in is clean, is valid it's personalized and the person wants to get it. and i think especially in this world e-commerce specifically you can sell so much yeah and the fact that we don't use it correctly we think it doesn't work um and what's it called it just makes me astounded anyway let's wrap it up it's been an hour and a half 
Oh, really? Time flew by. Um, <laughs> yeah, it flew by. Flew I feel by. like we could have just gone and. I'm sure we could like do another two hours. A thousand topics. <laughs> Maybe we just have to do another podcast then. It's been fun. Yeah. Um, do you write a lot of content online? If you're able to read or reach out or anything? Sometimes I okay. do. I do enjoy writing, so I try to do it when I can. Okay. Um, I haven't published too much. Um, you should, but it's Something that I would like to. You definitely should. To start to do. Where, where have you been published here so far? Uh, actually, it's been with um, a publishing company called Brandberries. I don't know. I don't it's know, not no. so well known. Do you, know, do you like communicate campaign those ones? Not yet. You should though. Yeah, I know. I'll, I'll give you the email yeah. of the person I yeah, speak yeah. to. Uh, yeah. They're always looking for content, and I yeah. think you have, you have awesome opinions. For sure. Even if, it's the, if it goes against the grain, who cares? Yeah. I, I mean, go. I've been on a number of panels yeah. before. <laughs> no, for sure. Uh, but um, if people just want to reach out to you, they like what you said, if they if they like what you and your agency are doing and want to, if like a client out there, uh, Stacey Fisher on LinkedIn. Yes. Hit her up. Um, or reach out to Hearts and Sciences if it's agency related. Anything else? Uh, any other place? Or is that enough? Yeah, that's enough. That's cool. And for me, this podcast, if you're hearing it and you want to hear it somewhere else, it's on Apple Podcasts. It is on Google Podcasts. It is on Spotify. It is on over 15 plus channels. Check it out. And Rami, hopefully, will be on Rami very soon. I'm just trying to get it finalized when Rami will see me there uh, on LinkedIn. I'm Hassan Al Haj, Twitter, Instagram, Digital Hoos. Uh, subscribe give me my give me the feedback the feedback has been phenomenal everyone i love you all you guys have been awesome and that's it let's let's take this online and we're out